Six Figure Developer Podcast, the podcast where we talk about new and exciting technologies, professional development, clean code, career advancement, and more. I'm John Calloway. I'm Clayton Hunt. And I'm John Ash. With us today is JB Rainsberger. JB is a business and software coach, mentor, consultant, trainer, and speaker. He is currently the owner of jbrains.ca, and he's here to talk about test-driven development. Welcome, JB. Thanks very much. It's great to be here. Why don't you tell us uh, kind of how you got started in the industry and, uh, you know, kind of like what led you to to the point that you're at right now? Yeah, so I, I was really lucky that I, uh, I had to spend the first four years of my career working at IBM in Toronto. And the one most the one thing about working at a company the size of, our, of IBM is that you can't make a big mistake. I mean, no matter what you do, the worst thing that happens is you get fired. You don't take anybody's business with them with you when you go. You you don't you know you don't ruin anybody's life. If you mess up big time, then uh, they do the IBM equivalent of firing you, which is essentially they transfer you to a project you hate until you quit. And uh, and that really opened up the door for me to just try stuff. And it took about two years of flailing around to figure out that I, you know, as much as I maybe had some aptitude for writing software, I wasn't nearly as effective as I could be. And I, you know, most people in the audience probably recognize that feeling of sort of fixing one mistake, making two more, fixing two mistakes, making one more, and kind of that general feeling of treading water. Good. Some nodding of head. That's good. I'm glad I'm not the only one. And, uh, and I found myself in that, in that, in that mode. So I did what any sane programmer would do. It was 1999, so I opened up a, I opened up Netscape. I went to altadavista.com, and I typed in uh, how to test Java code, and that led me to this weird thing called JUnit, which then led me to a book called uh, Extreme Programming Installed, which was the second extreme programming books, which then taught me about this weird thing called test-first programming. Uh, and... Most people, when they encounter test-first programming for the first time, they either love it or they hate it. Like it either sounds like the most sensible thing in the world, or it sounds like a, a absolute stupidity. And I was definitely in the first camp. And right away, I started getting benefits from it, and uh, that led me to the point where I kind of felt like, oh, maybe I, if I teach this to people around me, then you know, I can be the top lifts all boats we can you know we can make things better for everyone and IBM did not want that so uh, very slowly so it, it, it ironically in although they didn't fire me they actually did sort of the opposite of transferring me to a project I hated they stopped me from doing the thing I wanted which was to teach I would have been happy to row you know be the roving instructor around IBM Toronto and help programmers essentially do their job and uh, they said, nope, we need you to write code. So I said, nope, I'm going to do that somewhere else. And I left in 2001, spent a year as a, as a classroom uh, trainer, training in 
terrible, terrible technologies like WebSphere administration and J2EE programming with WebSphere Application Studio. But I got a lot of experience teaching courses and building course material. And by 2003, I was actually teaching stuff I liked. And it kind of, you know, that's pretty much, it's been, the rest is sort of came from there. I've been, I've had the chance to build a career where I'm, uh, I'm teaching something that I enjoy. I am uh, getting a chance to write uh, speaking conferences and then, you know, sort of build a little market machine around going to conferences, hoping people like me, seeing them hire me, doing public training, which leads to private training. And now I'm here uh, with nowhere to go uh, and wondering what I'm going to do next. I got lucky that I, I, I got in at the beginning of the sort of online training, self-paced training fa- uh, uh, craze uh, five or six years ago. And uh, now... Everyone's so this has actually become a new thing that I can help my, some of my peers with is the ones who are like I have no idea how to do training anymore. Uh, I can help them get started with uh, with doing training and and give a little bit back to the community that way. So you'd be like a second level instructor instructing the instructors. Well, that is if you read any of the get rich books, they all boil down to step one: get your personal finances in order. Step two: teach other people how to get their personal finances in order. Step three, teach other people how to teach people to get their personal finances in order. So it, it, it kind of has a bit of a uh, multi-level marketing feel to it. Um, yeah. So that's, it's, it's kind of, yeah. yeah. Start doing online training, then teach people how to make money doing online training, and then people how to teach people to make money doing online training. And by then, you should be rich. I'm not rich yet, but, you know, one step at a time. Training all the way down. Uh, it, well, I mean, it's, it's all learning, so there's got to be somebody teaching. <laughs> So let's go ahead and, and dive right into test-driven development. Clayton and I, of course, know what test-driven development is, or TDD. For those listeners out there that might not be familiar with it, you want to give us just a, a brief introduction of what, what is TDD? Yeah, absolutely. And, and sort of, there's sort of three things that I talk about, test-first programming, test-driven development, and evolutionary design. And they sort of build on each other. Test-first programming is just the rule. I don't know how to write code without bugs, so I'm going to adopt a really simple rule. I'm not going to write any production code unless I have a failing test. That's test programming. Now, what happens as a result of that, how that changes your behavior, how that changes the way you approach writing code, how that changes the way you think about writing code, that's all extra. That's the, the good stuff. The thinking more in terms of inputs and outputs and thinking less in terms of data structures and algorithms, putting those two things together, not forcing yourself to make a bunch of decisions up front, but just allowing yourselves to get started once you have a place to start with the confidence that you'll eventually get kind of where you need to go, um, it really just starts from that one simple thing. So test-first programming uh, is really just, you know, thou shalt write production code without a failing test. And if you follow that rule, uh, then that changes your behavior in interesting ways. And then we have test-driven development, which I frame as pretty much test-first programming plus making design decisions as late as possible. So um, it's like adopting a real options approach to software design. So most people, even today, I think, are conditioned to think of software design as sort of, you know, going into the corner, thinking really hard for three months, drawing a bunch of diagrams, and then coming out and saying, here is my beautiful design, 
and then either building it or handing it to the nice people in the pit to build it for them. And we tried for decades, and it it kind of works, and it kind of doesn't. Uh, but not for everybody. It doesn't fit everybody's mind. It doesn't fit the way everybody thinks. So with test-driven development, we go in the completely other direction. We try to defer commitments to design decisions as late as possible. And so most of the design actually happens in the refactoring phase, which is a fancy word for improving the design of code that already exists. Almost everyone out there has had the experience of designing themselves into a corner. Imagine if you never designed yourself into a corner again. Imagine if you never felt like you wanted to throw it all away and start again. And so refactoring is a bunch of skills related to being able to improve the design of existing code to make it easier to add the next feature. So tech-driven development, loosely speaking, is the tech programming rule plus relentless refactoring. And it's not just the idea that I can rescue code that I've already written. It's not just the idea that I can defer my decisions until the last responsible moment, whether that exists or not is a whole other discussion, but sort of confidence that comes with that mindset. When you start to think of design that way, then no design decision feels difficult. You just do something that seems to be roughly in the direction of where you want to go, confident that you can adjust your course as you need to. And so that's really what, that's where we go from test-driven development to evolutionary design. Test-first programming is a perfect example of a programming because it's focused on implementation details. And it's not even really the point, right? The, the test-first programming was the rule. Test-driven development was the reason to drive your design decisions by tests. By the way, I didn't mention, and I should mention, that you can get feedback your tests to help you decide what to do about your design. That if your test sucks, then there's a problem with your program, there's a problem with your production code, and if you simplify the production code, then your test gets simpler. So that's sort of the driven part of test-driven development. And even test-driven development is very much a programmer name. It's in implementation detail. So I like to say that test-driven development is the implementation, evolutionary design is the interface. So the idea that evolutionary design is just this feeling like I don't ever need to feel committed to any design decision. I can just do things. Uh, I have some good, simple rules for how to improve the design at the, at the lowest levels. I have some ideas uh, and principles about how to organize code. And I can just make stuff work. And then once it works, take a deep breath look at how terrible the design is and do something about it and not feel trapped by how bad the design is. You know, so I can sort of be, I can be slaying the dragon trying to get something to work. And then when finally the dragon is dead and I have something working, I can look at what I have, ask, how does this suck? And then actually do something about it. And really the big deal with evolutionary design is um, reducing volatility in the marginal cost of features which is one of those phrases that if you practice it, and I practice it for hours, you can imagine, if you practice it and you, and you tell people that the reason why I want to do evolutionary design is to reduce volatility and the marginal cost of features, suddenly people, especially those who are not programmers for a living, sort of perk up and they have this vague, warm, fuzzy feeling like, this person understands me. This person understands my needs and what I need to do. And suddenly you're on their side. And so... One of the what that's really for me the 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 punchline for evolutionary design.
when I'm talking to clients, when I'm talking to business folks, when I'm talking to programming leaders, managers, architects, whoever, I focus on that part, reducing volatility and the marginal cost of features, right? Which is really just a fancy way of saying making the cost of the next feature more predictable. Um, and when I'm talking to programmers or testers or anyone sort of really, you know, on the teams, I focus on TDD or evolutionary design as a way of programming with less stress. So if you think of getting things done as the art of stress-free productivity, then evolutionary design is sort of like the art of stress-free software development, where every time you build something, you feel confident that it works. When you add more code, it doesn't make this design worse, that you actually have a way of rescuing the design a little bit as you go, and you never have that feeling like you just want to throw it all away and start again. I don't think I've ever heard the uh, the business reason that you gave. I really like that. But in my own personal experience, trying to introduce some individuals to TDD, you know, I have mentioned the evolutionary design aspect and I have mentioned, you know, kind of like fearless refactoring. And I've mentioned, the, you know, that I, I can't write code without bugs. So I use this to, to kind of help me. Uh, they may not come out and say it, but they kind of have that attitude of my code is perfect. And I've been an architect for 20 years, and I know that my design is perfect. What do you say to, to those individuals that are kind of like fighting the, your base argument for TDD? Is there, is there some other reason why you would do TDD that would appeal to them to at least try it? Well, I mean, my, my real answer to the people who really feel that way is, okay. I mean, <laughs> you know, I, I, I spent... I spent the first decade of my consulting career inflicting lots of help on people, and it, it just took me way too long to figure out why that doesn't work. I mean, truly, for the programmers who look at me dead in the eye and say, I, I, I write great code, uh, I, I have great designs, I don't have any of the problems that you describe, then if they, if they happen to ask me, or if they say, therefore, I'm not going to try your crazy evolutionary design, I just say, okay, would anybody else like to try I try not to say it in that dismissive way. Like I, I'm not, I'm genuinely okay with it. You do, you should not listen to me. If you can do this better than I can, then you sure as hell shouldn't listen to me. But one of the things that's kind of emerged over the last few years for me, and it's how I start on my training courses, is I'm not here to convince anyone to try to do test-first programming, test-driven development, evolutionary design. It's actually one of the reasons why I like talking about evolutionary design, because test-driven development is just one way to do it. And if you have another way to do it, do it. If you have another mechanism for reducing volatility and the marginal cost of features, or if you have so much trust with the people around you that that's not a problem for you, then do what makes you happy. You're not going to hurt my feelings. It's all fine. Most people are not in that situation. And so what I like to do is to start by describing for people some sort of common reasons why one might be looking for a new way to work as a kind of self-diagnostic test, as a way of giving them an opportunity to say, I fit in one of these categories, that's why I might be interested in this. And it's one of the reasons why I differentiate test-first programming and test-driven development, for example. Because for you know, let's say you're a programmer, um, it doesn't matter how many years of experience you have. You might have three years of experience or you might have one year of experience 20 times. But you're in that situation where you're drowning in mistakes, in the way I described earlier. Well, if you're drowning in mistakes, defects, bugs, whichever word you want to use, 
design is not really an important thing for you. If I talk to you about reducing volatility and the marginal cost of features, either that's going to go over your head or that's going to make you yawn. Either way, you're not going to listen. And you have good reason not to listen because you are drowning in bugs, spending 70% of your time in support calls. I've worked with those clients. And to teach them refactoring, although it's not a waste of time, if I try to push that information at them, they get angry. And I used to think that they were being resistant for the sake of it. And I used to think that it was my job to shove the vegetables into them, whether they wanted it or not. And I really changed my way of thinking. For those folks, if bugs are their bottleneck, if the problem is that support time or however you want to frame it is your bottleneck, then forget out the design. Just focus on the bugs. Do test-first programming. Start by fixing every bug with at least one failing test. Just start there. And you don't need to do anything else. The beautiful thing about test-first programming is there's just one rule. Just start with a failing test. I don't care how big that test is. I don't care how complicated that test is. All I care about is whether that test passes or fails after you think it should pass or fail. At event, if you do that, or if you do something like it, then eventually you'll get to the point where bugs are no longer your bottleneck. You'll get to the point where writing code that behaves correctly becomes routine, boring, right? And then at some point, you'll start to realize that maybe now writing code without bugs is not too hard. I can do it most of the time. I can do it the vast majority of the time. But it really is a pain when I have to look at, at how to test this part of the code and because this part of the code is four or six months old, it becomes difficult to write tests for it. Or I feel like it, I can take the time to write tests for this stuff, but it feels like I really have to work hard to figure out how to make the new tests pass as I go along making the new tests pass harder and harder. All right, congratulations. Now you're seeing that design is part of, is becoming your bottleneck. The design of certain parts of your code are now the bottleneck, and now we're interested in the design feedback part of tester development. Now we're ready to take one step farther from just writing the test first and to using the feedback that you're getting from the tests as a way to give you feedback about how to refactor the code. There's not a lot of point in me teaching you relentless refactoring if you are drowning in bugs. And so, you know, what I tell people is look, here is, you know, if, if you're worried about bugs, just focus on test-first programming. When that becomes boring, then you, then, you know, then you need to fix the design. Now you're interested in test-driven development. When you get to the point where that's boring, but you get annoyed by how much you have to refactor in certain parts of the code, then now you're ready to try smaller steps. So something like either just take tiny steps or, you know, the test and commit otherwise revert that uh, Kent Beck has been writing about for the last couple of years. At some point, tiny steps will help you avoid that feeling of some parts of the code need some really serious refactoring and some don't. Though tiny steps will help sort of distribute the ugliness relatively uniformly throughout the code. So you have like little messes everywhere, but no big messes anywhere. I, I talk about four stages of, of evolutionary design. And, you know, there's bugs, design, small steps, and then the fourth stage, which I'm in right now, so I don't actually know what it's called. But it allows me to say things like, when I'm working in Python or Ruby or any of those kinds of languages, I write different kinds of tests than I write when I work in Java, C Sharp, Elm, Haskell. There's different ways where maybe uh, in some environments I can lean on the tools and therefore I tend to organize my refactorings based on composing how the tool does it. 
if I have a plain text editor and I'm doing all the editing myself, I might perform the refactorings in a different order. Or in this language, I know what libraries there are. Uh, I would approach a problem differently than I would in this language. At each stage, you have sort of a different way of practicing what at its heart is write a test, make it pass, write a test, make it pass. I do this in part so that anybody off the street, anybody who walks into a training course, anybody who asks me, why should I do any of this stuff? I can tell them, if you relate to one of these stages, then you know how to practice. So then if you relate to being in stage one, then you should just focus on writing the test first, building that habit, and don't worry about the rest. And if you relate to being in stage two, then look at more carefully at the tests. And if the tests are terrible in this specific way, that suggests this refactoring. If the tests are terrible in this specific way, it suggests this refactoring. Just adopt a rule that says if the test sucks, my design needs to change. And then in stage three as well, just adopt the, the rule that don't do it in one step if you can do it in two, that the smaller steps will help you move more steadily. And what I find in this way of framing things is that it's no longer an exercise of me figuring out what silly reason you have for resisting my obviously brilliant idea. Instead, I can come at it genuinely from the feeling of, I don't know what your problems are. Maybe I'll get to know you better and I'll get to know what your problems are. But I can tell you that these are some common problems that I see. And people here should focus on this. People here should focus on this. People here should focus on this. And their, gener their life generally gets better. And then I try to have the, the fun discussion, which is, you know, okay, now it's just us. When we talk to them out there, we're going to talk about reducing volatility and the marginal cost of features, protecting our capacity to deliver features, having a steadier stream, more predictability, all the stuff that they care about. But just among us, evolutionary design's a hell of a lot, a hell of a lot less stressful way of writing software. And that's why I care about teaching it to you. When you sit down to actually build stuff, I want it to be boring. Boring in the it just everything works or I know what to do when it doesn't. I'm not dealing with firefighting, heart attack, any of that stuff. That's, that's for young people. And anyone who wants to write code that way can go ahead and do it. But when you get to a certain age, somewhere in your early to mid-30s, you start to realize that that's not really a sustainable way to work. You want to work with less stress. Here is the way to do it. And to the people who say that I already love the way I do everything and my performance reviews are great and I already have a corner office and all that stuff, I just say, okay, well, I'm. when that changes, you know where to reach me. Anytime I hear the words refactor and unit test in the same sentence, I'm reminded of a quote from Doc Norton. If you've skipped unit tests because you plan to refactor the code soon, you might not understand refactoring or unit tests. Or unit tests or both. And then I was involved in a, a conversation earlier this week with some colleagues talking about the testing pyramid that we know is maybe dead or gone. And of course, there's there's always a clickbait article out there of um, DHH saying that TVV is dead, long live testing. Some of the arguments for the testing pyramid to be readdressed or, or maybe the, the applications that are being developed these days are more microservice architecture, then how do we account for that? Should we not spend more, more of our time writing tests, not too many, mostly integration is, is another phrase. Uh, this is something that I, um, test-driven development and specifically the refactoring part of it is, is a little, little bit a product of its time. Uh, not its passe necessarily. The, the X unit framework came out of the small talk community, right? We needed it because people were building 
object-oriented systems, mostly monoliths, uh, in Smalltalk, in a language that didn't have much compile time support. It's not like there were, I mean, there was a refactoring browser, but anybody who's programmed in Ruby or Python or any of the, you know, or uh, plain JavaScript knows the experience of not getting, not having compile time type checking. And that just causes you to be more careful. Um, and that's where all that stuff came from. I, I get the sense that the refactoring parts, the design patterns parts, the refactoring to patterns parts, all that kind of came out of not a failure of object-oriented programming, but of a failure of people to appreciate that object-oriented programming is about encapsulating state change and not about inheritance polymorphism. Especially now that we have more distributed stuff. I won't say microservices because I'm not sure if they're either services or micro, but the tendency towards more distribution and the tendency towards smaller pieces being connected together. 15, 20 years ago, I think we started to use the term scrap heap programming, where it was less building and more taking stuff from the junkyard and putting it together, except now we call it like Zapier. That is actually moving us more in the direction of less of an impact from bad design and more of an impact from misunderstanding the contract between pieces. There's a couple of things that go with that. One, that doesn't mean that you don't have to know anything about design. It just means that maybe there's less opportunity to practice than there used to be. One of the great things about growing up and writing code when I did from like, you know, 99 to 2010, when I was mostly learning about design and practicing, was because we're mostly building monoliths, even relatively small ones, but, you know, single process services or applications. Um, there was a lot of fertile ground. It was a lot of opportunity to practice refactoring towards the kinds of things that we realize are now good things. And, you know, whether you think of it as functional core imperative shell or uh, just using the dependency inversion principle, you know, and cranking it up to 13. Um, however you want to frame it, it's all the same. The idea that you isolate state change to the boundaries of the system, and then there's a warm, dry place in the middle where nothing bad can happen, and everything is just functions that turn objects in memory into other objects in memory. And how hard is that? I mean, you can. that's where the substitution model of computing actually works. You can go back and read your structure of in, and interpretation of computer programming, it all makes sense. In there, one of the things that I started teaching eventually became what I called, uh, eventually learned to call integrated tests or a scam, where the idea is we build single process monolith systems as loosely coupled modules talking to each other through well-defined interfaces, where instead of writing, instead of writing unit tests and then having end-to-end -end tests to see if the system hangs together, I each part of the system as a true module with a defined contract that I verify with tests called contract tests. Now, had I known to call them consumer-driven contract tests and to put the words in Martin Fowler's mouth, I would have done that. But you know, we can't all be we can't all be the the, the popular figures that Martin Fowler is. What's kind of interesting about that, or what I, the reason why I think that works well is first, it helps people avoid these huge suites of tests that become exponentially more costly to maintain, but you're effectively building microservices in a single process. They're just, we call them objects and we hide them behind interfaces because we're doing it in Java or C-sharp. And what that does is that moves the, it, it, it doesn't make the design stuff less important. It just means that you sort of have less practice designing. When you don't own the design of the pieces, it's hard to factor. 
And so when the needle turns back in the direction of mostly clear contracts and learning how to test your side without having to integrate it with their side, because integrating it with their side is where all the pain and suffering happens. So you integrate with their side to reverse engineer the contract, and then you test your part with their contract, and it either works or it doesn't. Uh, it doesn't solve all your problems, but uh, it saves an awful lot of time, which you can then use to just monitor the system running in production. And when something weird happens, let's go looking for the contract test that's either missing or wrong and fix it. So I think one of the what, what's what's changed really is that we are going more back in the direction of an emphasis of on testing, and so we can have the unit test argument more. We can have the micro testing argument more. The design part hasn't gone away because understanding those design principles helps us understand how to break the world into microservices and whether we should use their their API or their API if we have a choice. What's changed is that people don't have quite the same opportunities to practice that. And that is a real shame. Uh, everybody should build some monoliths so that they can understand how the dependency inversion principle helps, so they can understand how to, they can independently discover the, the wisdom of the functional core imperative shell or pushing state to the boundaries of the system. So that when it comes time to integrate microservices, they're actually microservices. You actually know how to design microservices and not just a distributed spaghetti monolith, but actual microservices where the divisions make sense and it's easy to compose things. I don't think you can design distributed microservices well if you've never done it in a single process. And that's really what I think. That's why I teach TDD. TDD is a fantastic mechanism for really deeply understanding how to build essentially microservices in a single process. And then when we let you loose or you let yourself loose, I shouldn't be parental. When you let yourself <laughs> loose on distributed microservices, they'll actually be microservices and won't that be wonderful? And then you really will be able to, when something is wrong, just build a replacement for it, plug the replacement in and the rest of the system doesn't care because you understand what the Liskov substitution principle teaches you. You understand what the dependency inversion principle teaches you. I, I worry that we're going to raise a generation of programmers who just don't practice that stuff and I wonder how they're going to learn it. They'll learn it differently than I did, but because it's not the way I learned it, I don't know how they're going to learn it. Ask anyone who's touched a hot stovetop, pain is the best teacher. One of our Twitch viewers has asked a question. Surly Dev asked, do you find doing TDD in anger slows down the initial development process only to make gains later on by not having to refamiliarize yourself with old code in order to debug? The dirty secret of, of evolutionary design, not just TDD, but the dirty secret of evolutionary design is that it's slow at the beginning and it speeds up. It accelerates quite a lot. It's very hard to measure the time you don't waste. And that's really the hardest part of any improvement, but of evolutionary design in particular. When you feel confident that you know how to evolve the design, then you can really cut the design right to the bone. You can build you that, that mantra, do the simplest thing that could possibly work. You start to really live that. And what that allows you to do more than anything else is to stop wasting time over-designing early and amortize the cost of those design decisions over the entire project. And then you kind of get the best of both worlds. You get that sort of uh, that explosion out of the blocks at the beginning of a project or at the beginning of a code base 
where, yeah, you know that these design decisions are not awesome, but they're good enough for now and I know how to refactor it later. This can be a file and then I can replace it with a database and then I can move it to the cloud. When you reach a point of real confidence in real trust in your ability to guide the evolution of a design, then you don't need to build a heap of infrastructure to get the first four features working. And then you can really deliver on the promise of minimum viable product, lean startup, any of however you want to frame it. You can experiment with little things, hack them together. If this actually goes somewhere, we're not going to design ourselves into a corner. We're not going to bury ourselves under a big ball of mud. We're not going to get trapped by the things that we used to get trapped for before because ah, just, you know, a week of refactoring to build to pay down the you know, the things that we did uh, as a result of the exuberance of youth. I know how to do it. I trust myself to do it. And because I trust myself to do it, I don't have to worry about when I do it. I will do it when it needs doing. And that's when you really know that you've gone from test-first programming as a way to stop yourself from making silly mistakes to really being able to guide the evolution of a design. It's not just the ability to refactor. It's not just avoiding designing yourself into a corner, but it's trusting your judgment to say, in this situation, I can cut some corners and I'm not going to kill the project because not only can I refactor my way out of this, but I will refactor my way out of this and refactoring our way out of this is not going to bankrupt us. That is the space where great things can happen. So we've talked about a lot of things. Uh, do you have any specific resources that you might be able to point listeners to, to to help them in their journey through test first, through TDD, through evolutionary design? Well, I'm glad you asked. So uh, one of the simplest places to get started is TDD.training. If you like what I have to say and you want to reward me by sending me currency units, then TDD.training is a great place to start. There you'll find the world's best introduction to test-driven development, level one, which will take you from zero to essentially through the test-first programming idea into the beginnings of evolving your design. And by the end of that course, you'll at least know what should I focus on practicing and what does it feel like to guide the evolution of design? And then you just practice for a few months, uh, maybe a year. And if you can break through that refactoring rut, then off you go. If you want to uh, read more and you're not prepared to send me currency units, and I understand, I write uh, two blogs. If you want to read specifically about programmery things, uh, then go to blog.thecodewhisperer.com. And if you would like to read about not just programmery things, but also, you know, businessy things and personal development kinds of things, then uh, go to blog.jbrains.ca. Um, that's where you'll, you know, read more about, you know, some of the things that are not just about code. And uh, one thing that I'm very happy about. So uh, last uh, last year, I guess, late last year, Yahoo announced the that they were getting rid of the web access to the Yahoo groups. And that only matters because in the late 90s, early 2000s, there was an explosion of Yahoo groups in the nascent extreme programming agile community. And so there were a ton of them. And I hung out there, you know, at my peak, like six hours a day, asking questions, answering questions. That's how I learned to answer questions and help people uh, and, you know, and become part of this thing that became the 
agile community, but actually agile and actually a community. And um, when I heard they were going away, I was terrified that we were going to lose 20 years of, of uh, combined wisdom. So I rescued a couple of them. So if you go to groups.io and search for the extreme programming or test-driven development, we have re- I have rescued the Yahoo groups with the help of some, some co- financial contribution from friends. Um, there are over 100,000 messages stretching back to the mid to late 90s discussions, long-form discussions, what would effectively be like blog posts, replying to blog posts, replying to blog posts, replying to blog posts, where you could really sit and talk about something for three, four, five, six weeks and have 200 of the most interested, intelligent, thoughtful people in the community talk about it at once. If you want to ask me, go to ask.jbrains.ca. And as long as you're willing to wait indefinitely for the answer, that service is free. And if you need a better service level agreement than that, then there are low cost ways to get there. And if you just want to read a book on test-driven development, test-driven development by example, the book by Kent Beck from I think 2000 or 2001 is still the classic on the subject. Yeah, the, the actual code sample itself probably feels a bit antiquated by now, but the basics of how to work really do match what's in that book. It's like reading the psychology of computer programming or elements of programming style or any of those old books. Yeah, PL1 code samples are quaint, but a lot of the stuff they say in there still works. So we always like to ask for our guests to provide words of wisdom for individuals that are just starting their career or possibly maybe they've been in a rut and they want to they really get back into it and jumpstart their career from wherever it is. Could be TDD or it could be something completely different. What kind of advice would you give to those individuals? Two things come to my mind, and neither of them have anything to do with TDD or evolutionary design. Because let me tell you, I feel you. I since about uh, maybe the last ten years or so, I really, really have fallen out of love with the technology part of software development. It's it just uh, nothing works, and nobody seems to mind. It's one of the reasons that I teach TDD. I'm hoping that this is going to help raise another generation of programmers who actually build stuff that works. And if they build stuff that works, then maybe those become the platforms that I'll be building on in my 60s, and then I'll actually like programming again. Two important things. One, find a community of people, any community of people, and whine to them. Don't be afraid. Whether that's social media, Yahoo groups, Google groups, groups.io groups, local meetup groups, doesn't matter, maybe not Slack, because that's more like a bar and that's really not what you need right now, but any kind of community where you can whine about what you don't like and have a, have a supportive environment where people will push back and ask you questions and actually try to help you. Don't be afraid. I mean, I, let's not turn this into a cult based around the secret. But if you do tell people what you don't like, eventually somebody will give you some suggestions about how to fix it. And that might be what you need. It, it certainly helped me when I was whining about how terrible my job was at IBM and someone eventually reached into the ditch, pulled me out and said, here, let me welcome you to the lovely world of contract programming. The second thing is, when you're not sure what to do, follow your energy. This, these are three words of wisdom that Diana Larson gave me years and years ago that I, I hold on to deeply in my heart, that I am indebted to her for for the rest of my life for having heard, especially when you feel like you want to do things 
but you feel guilty about doing them because they're not the things you should be doing. They're not the things you ought to be doing. They're not the things that are objectively number one in your backlog. The bottom line is that if you have lower energy for whatever reason, then capitalize on whatever energy you can generate. Energy is literally your bottleneck. I mean, it's also literally your bottleneck in every sense, but don't underestimate that. Don't put that, don't, don't shut that down. Don't pretend that's a moral failing. That's not a moral weakness. You're not lazy. You're not stupid. You're human. When you have the slightest impulse to do something that could vaguely be interesting, do it. Don't worry about whether it was productive. Don't worry about any of that. Worry about how do you feel after you did it. And if you feel you have a little bit more energy, that's a good sign. And if you can do that enough, if it gives you some energy, it doesn't have to give you joy. You don't have to follow your passion. That's all nonsense. If it gives you energy, do it because that gives you more energy to get closer to doing the things that you ought to do, the things that you need to do, the things that are going to make you productive. And then do you have any social media that anyone who might want to hear more words of wisdom uh, could subscribe to to follow? Uh, I'm old, therefore I'm on Twitter. Uh, so you can find me at jbrains. And I actually still kind of like Twitter. I don't have a problem with Twitter, really. The people who say they don't like Twitter just don't have patience. And uh, I don't really hang out on LinkedIn, but you can find me on LinkedIn if you really prefer to connect that way in certain parts of the world. Apparently in Latvia, LinkedIn's a big deal. So you can definitely follow me there. And uh, I'm happy to, to talk to you again. Remember, just if you want to ask me a question, go to ask.jbrains.ca. And when this travel disruption craziness is over, I'm really looking forward to coming back to Central Europe three months a year from you know September to December uh, to come out there and go to some conferences, to do some training, to work with clients. I've really enjoyed being able to do that over the last, every year for the last 10 years. I really want to get back to my, our apartment in Stockholm and uh, come back and see you folks. Well, JB, thanks so much for, for joining us tonight. I really appreciate it. Thanks very much for taking the time and giving me the space to, to talk. That was JB Rainsberger. JB is a business and software coach, mentor, consultant, trainer, and speaker. He is currently owner of jbrains.ca. If you like this episode, please like, rate, and review on iTunes. Find show notes, blog posts, and more at sixfiguredev.com. And be sure to follow us on Twitter and catch us live each week on Twitch at Six Figure Dev. This has been another episode of the Six Figure Developer Podcast, helping others reach their potential. I'm John Calloway. I'm Clayton Hunt. And I'm John Ash. <laughs>